NBA legend, <laughs> currently on injured reserve. Well, I do thank you guys. I know so many of you have made sure and let me know that you are praying for my need to recover. I appreciate that. It has been a slow process, much, much slower than I would have desired for it to be. I was told it would be slow in the beginning, but slow before you've experienced slow isn't really a definition, you know? And so I have a fresh definition for slow, and I'm, I'm not enjoying slow right now. But uh, I appreciate your prayers. appreciate you putting up with the change in pulpit uh, activity up here as well. Well, what a... You know, I was listening this morning as we were singing, and you know, I'm thinking, you know, if you come in here and it's Easter Sunday, and you're thinking, wow, Easter songs. I'm thinking, we sing these songs every week. And that is as it should be. You know, this morning is a unique morning in a couple of ways. Uh, one would be because the rest of the world sort of joins us in what we do every week. Because in reality... This is the message of our lives. This, this is the cornerstone of our existence. Now, if you're here this morning and this is a yearly celebration, well, I'm, I pray that this morning as you leave here, uh, something about that will have changed. This will not be an annual visitation, but this will become a daily reality because this message of Easter is intended by God to be that to us. Now, if you'll turn in the Gospel of John... We've been studying through the Gospel of John now since most of us were children, and we are coming to the end here. We're John chapter 20, and then we have John chapter 21. We spent a few weeks in the crucifixion from John chapter 19. We will spend a little bit of time in John chapter 20 with the resurrection. What's interesting about this passage that we're about to read is 1,980 years ago and about 14 hours. This is a real scene, really taking place. These are real people gathered amidst the dew of an early morning to witness these activities. So this is, this is going live, if you will, at that point, near Jerusalem into this setting to hear this story unfold. Let's read John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And there's some significance there I'm not going to really chase off on. Let me just make a quick comment. Uh, That's as clear as the Bible intended for that statement to be to us. 
Now, God has a limitation on how much he intended for us to clearly see everything. But you'd have some folks who would believe, okay, either the, the headpiece to what wrapped Jesus was either neatly set on the side, which in one sense, you know, if, if we're going to try and figure out what happened here, right? There's some facts here. There's evidence here. What happened in this scene? Did somebody break in and steal the body? Right? I mean, at the end of this story, this historic story, not just this biblical story, every one of us has to conclude what happened. So there's some evidence here. So there's this headpiece that's separate from the, the shroud that would have wrapped the body. And it is, it is separate, but we don't know how far. So one of two things happened here. Either it's been folded up neatly and put on the side, or it's separated about this far. About this far. Some people believe that when Jesus departed, he just, he just vaporized, if you will just departed, and so there, the body shrouding just collapsed in place. Well, the headpiece would have been separated by the neck. It would have been a separate piece, so there would have been separation there. So in any event, if you're stealing the body, you're not taking the headpiece off, folding it up neatly. You just want to, you know, hey, I was, a, I was a junior thief growing up. You just want to book. That's the term we used to use. <laughs> just want to take it and book. Um, y'all still use the word book? No one uses the word book. Anybody remember the word book in that sense? Thank you. Thank you, all you fellow hoodlums. Look in verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. And in verse 9, I'm going to come back to this verse, because this verse uh, was rather precious to me in looking at this passage this week. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now, why does the Bible include this story? Why is this story intentionally placed in the Bible? And when you come to the Bible, you do have to read the Bible that way. The Bible is intentionally constructed. It is a limited gather of, gathering of, of stories that God intended for us to read. You know, sometimes we come to the Bible and we're, and we're not aware of what the Bible really is, so we just start reading it as though it's this scattered, random group of stories that all have a moral to them. And so this is the good book, a good book teaching you how to live the good life, teaching you right and wrong. Right? And you know, often people are referring to the Bible without referring to anything that the Bible really is about. That first and foremost, the Bible is about this story. I mean, if you were to create vibration from the, the Bible and send it to the edges, this is where you'd pound hardest, right here. And then all the vibrations would show up in Genesis 1 at the end of Revelation. This is what the Bible's about. So it's, it's not as though this is just another one of those collected stories that we'll all just take a moral from this and we'll learn something from this passage. I mean, if you, if you were that way, you'd think, well, I guess this was to show us who the fastest disciples were, you know? I mean, why is that in there? That one guy outran the other one. Well, there's, there's elements here that are critically important. And the critical element in this passage is to establish the fact of the resurrection. That's why this passage is in the Bible, to establish the fact of the resurrection. Now, now note carefully, not to introduce us to the resurrection, 
because the Bible's been introducing us to the resurrection over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament as well as Jesus specifically throughout the New. But it is to give evidence to the resurrection and establish in our thinking the fact that Jesus Christ, who was crucified, was raised again from the dead. Now, the Bible's going to give a whole bunch of evidence here, and I'll put a lengthy quote there in your outline from J.C. Ryle. Because God chose an amount of evidence. Remember, this is God's chosen book. God chose to put certain things into this book. So there's a certain amount of evidence about the resurrection. Right? Let's read this with, with me. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on John, says, He was seen at least 11 times after he rose again, at different times of day, in different ways, and by different witnesses. He was seen first by one woman alone, then by several women together, then by one man, then by two men, and each time in the open air. Then he was seen by ten disciples in the evening in a room, then by eleven disciples again in a room, and afterwards on five different occasions, at one of which no less than five hundred people was present. Those to whom he appeared touched him, talked with him, and saw him eat and drink. If there is any fact in Christianity that is well supported by evidence, it is the fact of Christ rising again from the dead. One thing, at any rate, is most undeniably certain. The apostles, a few weeks after our Lord's crucifixion, were utterly and entirely different men in every way from what they were before the crucifixion. Even such men as German rationalists, Paulus and Strauss, are obliged to make the curious admission, something extraordinary must have occurred. Now, we all come to this topic, it's, it's Resurrection Sunday, and in our culture and in our country, this is a common day on the calendar. This is common information. Uh, it'd be a rare event that in this room... Uh, the only thing you've heard about Easter is the Easter bunny, uh, although you've heard a lot about him. Uh, but you've heard about the resurrection. You've heard the story. It almost be impossible to be an American and not hear some of this. It might be possible in some parts of the world. But this event, which has become way common to all of us to hear about, is an actual event. It has a time and a space in history. It's not from a a book of folklore. It, it touches human history in a way that left evidence all over the place. The Bible is a book of evidence. I mean, I'm not going to get into defending the Bible this morning, but if one were to defend the Bible, you would find that, that this body of work that God has put together has stood the test of time. It stood the test of archaeology and, ge- and geographic study and history. And only continues to bear witness to all that God has said is true, is recorded here. But you have all these events around the resurrection that the Bible tells us about, but then you have events in history that you have to grapple with them. I mean, this morning there's a simplicity that either Jesus Christ did rise from the dead or he didn't, right? I and mean, if we get into the realm of simple thinking here, it's not as though there's a bunch of possibilities. Well, you know, it's religion, though. You know, I mean, there's so many things. I mean, my goodness, people believe so many different things in religion. Okay, well, then did Jesus Christ raise from the dead or not? 
Well, Keith, that's such a big question, my goodness. You know, people all over the world believe so many things. Okay, I, yeah, I get, grant you all that. Let's just go back to the question. Did he rise from the dead or not? That is a yes or no question, isn't it? No, no matter how many religions there are, no matter how complicated life is, no matter how small our brain is, how many people there are, it's a yes or no question. Yes, he did, or no, he didn't. And you have to live with the choice you make. So obviously, you're in a Christian church. We've chosen, yes, he did. But maybe you're visiting today, or maybe you're, you're not quite convinced. Just don't do this. Don't make this mistake of being convinced of neither as though that's an option. You have to choose. And you have to choose based on something you believe is convincing evidence. So, so to say, ah, I don't, th- I don't, no, I don't think so. Well, then go back historically and explain how this hoax, this fraud, turned history upside down. You understand there's, the, you know, there's a hoax born every few minutes. And they run their course. They fool 15 people. Three of them are really zealous. One of them does something nuts. And then no one remembers them after a couple of years. I mean, David Koresh. Do you all still remember David Koresh? Okay, your children probably don't. And your grandchildren won't. And he was a blip of nothing. Until, you know, a big fireball in the event that took place in Waco, Texas. There's millions of hoaxes that you and I have never heard a breath about. This event has shaped human history. If this event hasn't occurred, then our whole life today is different. You're not even here this morning. Jesus gets to jump into the religious leader file along with so many other religions and religious people who had some interesting ideas about life, but really can't distinguish himself from anybody else. I mean, no matter what religion you put your hand on, there's some dead, influential individual who was in that religion. No matter what religion you choose, well-crafted, well-thought-out, some great ideas, maybe we're still quoting it a little bit, maybe it's etched on some buildings here and there, maybe there's some people in different parts of the world following some of those ideas, But they all have one thing in common. No matter who led that religion, he's dead. Except for Jesus Christ, who stands alone and therefore demands that we give some attention here. Now, when it comes to evidence and believing evidence, two questions, I think I'll put this in your outline. One, is there enough evidence to remove all doubt about the resurrection? Is there enough evidence to remove all doubt about the resurrection? No. Because anything that you believe by faith has doubt associated with it. Everything that you believe by faith, which is how we're supposed to operate in life, God's made us that way, has an element of doubt to it. And God didn't intend to erase all of that. He didn't intend to. But the question for us in terms of our faith is, is there enough evidence in order to have faith in the resurrection? Is there enough evidence? Has God supplied enough evidence? So now that might be a subjective question. Someone might say, well, well, maybe for you there's enough evidence. But you know, I'm, 
I'm just a critical thinker. I'm just real logic-minded. I'm, you know, I'm scientific by nature. So, you know, uh, you know, maybe for you, you're just kind of one of those gullible, emotional people who just need some kind of a crutch. And for you, maybe there is enough evidence. But hey, you know what? For me, it's not enough evidence for me. And there's no DNA evidence. There's no video footage. We've come so far, you know, in our technology. Why, why don't we have any of that? Well, here's an interesting thing. There is enough evidence for everyone who is going to believe the gospel. There is enough evidence. You know why I know there's enough evidence? Because God has ordained the amount of evidence that there is for anyone who would believe. For anyone who needs more evidence than that, you're not going to believe even if you can get more evidence. You just turn one page in your Bible, John chapter 20, the end of that chapter, the last verse there, verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. You understand? There's more evidence. There's more evidence than what's here in the Gospel of John. There's more evidence than what's in the Bible about all that God did through Jesus Christ. But God chose not to write that down. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are written so that you may believe. According to God, he has given out evidence, and according to God, it is enough evidence. It is sufficient for anyone who will believe you have enough information right in front of you to believe. Now, I know all of us probably would like to see God do something unusual for us, just to really just make this thing hammer home and become crystal clear. And I can't say that God doesn't sometimes do that. It's his call. It's unique. In, in the Gospel of John here, as we'll look at probably in a couple of weeks, maybe next week, uh, Thomas is an interesting individual. Because Thomas bumps into evidence and says, it's not enough. Unless I can, unless I can touch the wounds myself, for me, Now, you guys are telling me this is true, but unless I can touch, I'm not going to believe. And in an amazing condescension of the mercy of God, Jesus shows up the next night, says, Thomas, you need to touch? Here, come here and touch. Now, what incredible mercy of God he says, Thomas, you, you believe because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. See, there were plenty that they were not going to see what Thomas saw. They were not going to see what the Apostle Paul saw when he got knocked to the ground by the presence of the risen Christ. And now, how many people do you know and how many people are in the Bible besides Thomas and Paul who get that? See, apparently God says, there's enough evidence. I've given you enough evidence. I won't be doing a personal trick for everyone. Remember the story in, in Luke chapter 16, where there's a man who's lived his life, and he's died, and he's experiencing the afterlife, and he, he's in hell. And it's a place of torment and agony and pain. And he's allowed to see across this great divide and he sees into paradise, into the place where 
the righteous are waiting, going into heaven. And he sees Abraham, the great patriarch from the Old Testament, and a man named Lazarus, who he would have known. And Lazarus is in paradise, and this man is in agony. And he begins to cry out. He wants relief, and he realizes this is, the, this is it. This, I'm, I've entered into eternity, and he realizes his own family is going to follow him into the same place. And he asked Abraham, Abraham, send Lazarus to my relatives. Send a messenger to them that they don't end up in the same place with me. And you know what Abraham says? He says they already have enough evidence. He says they have Moses and the prophets. And if they will not believe that, neither will they believe even if someone came back from the dead and told them. See, there's a, there's a sovereign work. There's a work of God in saving man and believing. See, we, we're way too arrogant as people to think that, hey, hey, God, you, sh- you show up and you do something here for me, and I'll decide whether I'm going to believe or not. God gives evidence, and you will believe. And if you won't, all the argument and any more evidence isn't going to put you over the hump. Because you have chosen in your heart a resistance that all the evidence in the world, even someone coming back from the dead, won't undo. Now just shortly after this passage, if you were to turn to Acts chapter 2, just, just a few days pass, or a few weeks really. And the Apostle Peter is going to stand up in Jerusalem... And he's going to preach this message. Now I want you to notice what he says because he doesn't drift far outside of just John chapter 20. And the information that's there pulls out some thought from the Old Testament. And look at the impact that it has. John, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Out in the public square, thousands are listening. The Apostle Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. We're going to see that in just a moment. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David, Old Testament king and prophet, says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption or decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So Peter is quoting David, and then he clarifies that. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He's still there. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Witnesses, just like Mary Magdalene, just like those who ran to the tomb in John chapter 20. Witnesses. God chose evidence in the form of witnesses. And Peter stands up before a crowd and simply shares the testimony of what he knows. We've encountered the risen Christ. Take my word for it. That's his message. And look in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that day they were baptized, some 3,000 souls. Some 3,000 who didn't have DNA evidence, who didn't ask for a video clip, who listened to the witness of the Apostle Peter, and they believed. And suddenly the world began to shake. Thousands and thousands would believe in who Christ was. And to this day, countless millions have believed in the witness of the resurrection. See, God has chosen in this message to come into this message and to give to us revelation and faith to believe him. It was enough evidence then, and it is enough evidence now. Now, let me just take us into this resurrection story for a moment. Why why is the resurrection so important? And boy, there'd be a bunch of directions we could go in, and I just want to mention a couple and focus on one. Why so critical a story? Or is it critical? I mean, today, on the, the Christian calendar, the resurrection is being celebrated. But on other calendars, it's just another Sunday. So is, is this element in religion, just for some, it's cool? It's, you know, that's good if that's where you're at. That's what your thing believes. My thing doesn't believe it. Some people don't believe it. Some people do. Okay, well, then is it optional? Is it a, is it a nice add-on? Is it something, you know, if you want to believe that, that's fine, that's up to you, you know? Or is it vital and critical to the existence of man that one believes this? Well, to, to Christianity, to all of man it's vital, but to Christianity it's vital in a specific way. To have Christ without a resurrection is an empty belief, void of any help. It can't do anything for you. As a matter of fact, the Bible says you're, you're really a fool if you believe in Christ without the resurrection. Right? The resurrection stamps validity over who Jesus Christ is. That's actually what it says, Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ is who he is because of the resurrection. If he's not resurrected, he's he's just a nice guy with some nice ideas and some quotable stuff. Thanks for the material. But he doesn't help us. And he doesn't help us in this characteristic, which I want to spend a little time in in just a moment. Resurrection is important because it answers and solves the most basic dysfunction of human existence death 
There's nobody here today that has a bigger problem than that one. And I mean, I know you got problems, right? I mean, we all got problems. And they feel like they're big problems. But your problems come and go, don't they? Right? I mean, you lose a job, you get another job, gain some weight, you lose some weight, bad hair day, good hair day's coming. <laughs> By faith, for some of you. <laughs> but, but death is inescapable. I'll come back to that. I want to get to this probably in another message. Resurrection is so important because it imports, it imports into this life power to live this life and hope for the next. It, it imports that in. If you remove the resurrection, if you say no one has ever gone beyond death, you immediately change how you view your life. But something happened. There was power in the resurrection. That is saved for another message. But there's power there that affects our ability to live life today. We can live life today differently because there's this power that took place in the resurrection that now comes to us. The resurrection is full of power. It's a new life to live a new way with a new hope for those of us who are living this life. Right? Different message. But let me go back to this issue that it answers and solves the most basic dysfunction in our world, and that's the presence of death. I called it in your outline, man's dance with death. Now, this is, this is one of those moments where, this is not encouraging, I'm just warning you, this is not an encouraging part of the message. If you like the color white, then you will enjoy black in a certain way. This is the backdrop for the resurrection. Leo Tolstoy was a Russian novelist and thinker, and he wrote War and Peace, wrote in the late 1800s. He said this, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was... What will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? No matter how you're thinking your way through life, you either turn that question down and ignore it, or you solve it, or you live miserable in the shadow of it. Because of all of our toil and striving and all the things we're afraid of and wish we had and the regrets and our ambitions and our goals and aspirations, if this is just a temporary venture for all of us, why get so lathered up? Why go to work on Monday? Why worry? Oh, well, because they'll repossess this or I'll lose that. So what? Really? I mean, hey, if I could tell you right now, you all came in fresh, no history, just came in today, we're all gathered together, and I say, okay, guys, here's the rules. You got 60 minutes to live your whole life. 60 minutes, and then you're done. Go get them. 
Now, what are you going to do right now? What are you going to do with that 60 minutes? You going to go to college? Well, you know, I want to get a good paying job, but uh, you know, that just doesn't make sense with 60 minutes now, does it? You're going to get rich fast? You want to go break the law? You want to go bump something off? Go do some drug? You got 60 minutes. You want to be high for 60 minutes? You want to be out of touch with reality? What do you want to do for 60 minutes? You want to have children? Well, I can't have them that fast, but uh, just a lot of goals that you might be after in your life in 60 minutes if you know no matter what you could achieve. Beat everybody up in here. Steal the coolest car out in the parking lot. So what? You got it for 60 minutes. And then it's all over with. So does it matter whether you beat the guy up and got his car or whether you just sat in here and took a nap? Does it matter? You got 60 minutes. Now why, if I, change, if I just take the 60 and pull the minutes off and add years on there, why does that change now? All I did was just use a different measure of time. You got 60 years. Oh, 60 years. Well, I'll go to college and I got to have this and I live this way. I got to do these things. I got to accomplish this. Why, if after 60 years, it's all over, the lights get shut down and you're done and nothing exists anymore? You're dead. Death comes and it's over. See, the only way this life has any meaning is if it's permanent. If it's temporary, then your life doesn't have any meaning to it, and you know it. We need permanence. We need something of this life to go on. And if death is the end, well, then there is no going on, and it is meaningless. But according to Scripture, death is not the end. But death looms over humanity. Right, Acts chapter 2, verse 24, when Peter preached, he said, Jesus' resurrection, he said, he said, it loosened the pangs of death. I like that imagery. It didn't just deal with death, it loosened the pangs of death. New American Standard says it put an end to the agony of death. That word agony or pains, in the Greek it means pain and sorrow referring to the travail or pain of childbirth. Now, what's interesting here is it's both a moment and an extension. Right? Childbirth is just not that. It's, it's an extension leading up to something. And it's the travail leading up to something. It's also used as a warning of the sorrows that would follow wars, famines, and other catastrophes. This terrible event takes place, and then there's this period of time afterwards of agony, pangs, desolation. One translation says it's equivalent to intolerable anguish. Now listen to it for a moment here to a fellow named D.A. Carson. He speaks of death this way. He says, death is such an ugly enemy. Now he's, he's referring here to a passage earlier in John where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Right, remember that story? And after Jesus is delayed and he shows up on the scene of death, he's on the scene of death. There's, there's, there's mourning taking place. There's sadness. Back in this culture, unlike our culture, uh, when, the, when you go to a funeral in our culture, it's quiet. A few tears are being shed. People are under control. Not in this culture. In this culture, death was loud. It was lamenting. There was weeping. They actually hired bands to play, all in minor keys. They wanted to make sure the mood was on the edge of tears constantly. They would hire mourners. Uh, you know, there was a scene like this, you know, back uh, a couple of years ago. You remember the little boy Jair in Mexico who died? And I went to his funeral. Ugh, 
it was, it was gut-wrenching. Uh, it was like this. It was loud and cries and severe and music was being played uh, while the body is being lowered and then the relatives are, are burying this boy. Mm. That's the scene here that Jesus walks up on. He walks into death and most translations say he was, he was greatly troubled. Carson says they all got it wrong. He says the translation says he was outraged. When, when Jesus encountered death in the lives of humanity, he was outraged over it. Now, I think you can follow Mr. Carson's quote here a little better. Death is such an ugly enemy. It generates endless and incalculable anguish. Whether death afflicts us at 5 or 10 or 30 or 50 or 70 or 80 years, it comes and it is implacable. It's merciless. Death is an enemy and it can be a fierce one. Death is not normal when you look at it from the vantage point of what God created in the first place. It is normal this side of the fall, but that's not saying much. It is an enemy. It is ugly. It destroys relationships. It is to be feared. It is repulsive. There's something odious about death. Never pretend otherwise. He goes on in this section to basically help Christians who sometimes trivialize death by quoting the Bible a little too easily at a funeral. You know, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Um, there is something about this quote. I've not seen this quote before. I've not seen folks describe death this way. But immediately I identify with what he's saying. I identify with this at every funeral. If you see me at a funeral, if you see me do a funeral, you are seeing a man who is severely dealing with emotions. Uh, if, if I'm able to speak at a funeral, it's by the grace of God. Because I, I am affected I'm affected by how death comes and destroys and disrupts. And you, you stand at a funeral trying to figure out some way to summarize an entire person's existence for their family. You realize, oh, it's just next to impossible. And all that was summed up in their years of relating has just now suddenly been destroyed by this visitation of something called death. It is what Mr. Carson describes. He goes on and he says, never pretend otherwise, but death does not have the last word. Thank God for a savior who could claim, I am the resurrection and the life. See, into this moment where you and I are dealing with the realities of death, and we deal with it not only at funerals, we deal with it as we're constantly peering over our shoulder. There's something about this dance with death that's going on on a regular basis. Right, right. Hebrews chapter 2, if you can turn quickly, you can read this with me. Speaks of, a, a, of as though its presence is this enslaving presence in our lives. Hebrews 2 verse 14. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. Speaking of Christ, who came and put on flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and 
Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's an interesting image. People enslaved to the fear of death, right? I mean, you're going to face death once, but you face the fear of death a million times. In your mind, in your thoughts, you're dancing with death over and over and over again. You know, the, we pick these numbers, numbers of birthdays, right? You know, man, can you believe it? I'm turning 40 this year. 40, oh, 40. And somebody else says, oh, I'm turning 50. I mean, I, these numbers are beginning to make sense to me. Right? I'm, I'm approaching 50. Like, that, that was a number that didn't, it was like a fantasy number. It's like, that's a number, I'll never be 50. You know, you live your whole life thinking, I'll never be 50. I mean, when you get to 50, you qualify to use the word old. I mean, you're 50. I mean, that's old. You know, and I know you, a bunch of you guys are older than that. I'd love to comfort you. I can't. I mean, you're old. <laughs> you know, people keep telling me, uh, 50 don't sound so old anymore, does it, Keith? It sounds old, and I'm about to be it. You're know, racing towards these numbers. You know, you can say, you know, you're turning 20. Who, who cares? You don't even care, right? You're turning, I'm turning 20. Can you see my cape? You know, I'm turning 30. Uh, I don't know what it is about today turning 30, but back when I was turning 30, no big deal. But when you guys are turning 30, you think you're old. I don't know what's happening to you guys. It's like everybody's slowing up too much Xbox or something. Your body's not functioning right. But then you, you turn 40, you're over the hill. You know, there's black. People wear black. What, what, what's going on? Dancing with death. I mean, you're realizing, I'm a big step closer to dying, aren't you? I mean, come on, be honest. I mean, if I told you you're going to live to be a million years old, would you be going, can you believe it? I'm turning 50 this year. It's like, uh, what is that, like a year and a half old? (laughs) It wouldn't bother you. The reason why it bothers us is because it reminds us you have an expiration date. And you live your life. Right? You know, you, you get a little ache and pain when you're 20. It's just inconvenient, right? You get a strange ache and pain when you're 50. <laughs> this could be it, right? <laughs> and you're like me, you're one of those people who never goes to the doctor, so it's like. Uh, I was afraid to do an MRI. I was afraid they'd find like a watch in me or something. It's like, <laughs> that's where that thing is all these years. Uh, but, you know, you get older and, and, you know, can I just suggest this? When you cross 40, never own the uh, physician's desk reference. <laughs> Don't own one. It's just not a good idea. You start reading through and it describes symptoms and you're all over the thing. It's like, that's, that's, that was me last week. I felt just like that. All of a sudden you've got every disease known to man. Why are we thinking that way? I don't know how many times, you know, the the great sympathy that's bred in this church, I think it's by one of the pastors here, um, about having knee problems is now, it's like the quote of the century is, you're not as young as you thought you were, huh? (laughs) Like, listen, I knew I wasn't young, okay? This didn't confirm anything. It just let me know this body doesn't work the way it used to. You know, when I was trying to jump and slam dunk, I knew I wouldn't get there, but... The brain still thought, you know. <laughs> you ever notice that? Your brain still thinks. Still thinks when you jump, your body leaves the ground. <laughs> it's like, that was it. 
When I was in high school, I'd have been touching the rim, baby. You know, it's like, no, that was it for you now. But your brain still tells you, jump, jump. Uh, but your body is telling you, you're almost done. <laughs> All right, this is the dance with death. Right, if you want to see what it looks like in the animal kingdom, it looks, like, it, it looks like a deer or a rabbit. You ever see a deer or a rabbit? Just watch them in nature. They don't look like Bambi and Thumper. Bambi and Thumper are cool. They're strolling through time. A deer, or a, you know, we have rabbits in our neighborhood, and they constantly run around. This is what they look like. You know, they're... <laughs> it's like, you know, what's, what's going on with this rabbit in this moment? It's like, dude, relax. Enjoy life. <laughs> he can't. He can't. He is dancing with death everywhere. <laughs> There's a predator waiting to kill me at every moment, you know. That, that's what this passage is about. You live your life enslaved to death. It's like in every moment you're looking to see, is this it? Is, it, is this it? Is this it? <laughs> Until the resurrection. Man is haunted by death. Adrian Warnock. This book on the resurrection says, The Bible is in many ways a book about death. It begins in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned and death entered the world. It ends in Revelation with the judgment of sin and the celebration of the end of death for all believers. The Bible constantly reminds us of the human predicament and of the inevitability of our mortality. So whenever resurrection is mentioned, it is a shaft of light penetrating our helplessness and hopelessness. Because of the repeated discussion of death, the subject of resurrection assumes a dramatic prominence whenever it appears. Right? This is what makes light. This, this darkness of death is what makes the resurrection such great news. This shaft of light. But I love the way he said that. This shaft of light penetrating our helplessness and our hopelessness. You know, I think sometimes we're out of touch with the fact that we're dancing with death. But we're in touch with the fact that we feel helpless and hopeless. All right, so if you will, if right now you're thinking in your life and you're thinking, that's, that's, that's what I feel like. I, I feel a lack of hope in my life. I, I feel helpless, vulnerable. Hopelessness is close at hand. If that's the case, can I just tell you, it's resurrection morning. Can I tell you this? If that's how you feel, then the resurrection is far from you. It's not a reality to you. You may even be a believer here this morning. But if you're dwelling in helplessness and hopelessness, then you have misplaced the resurrection. It is a shaft of light into your darkest moment. No matter what life is telling you, right? Well, I've been diagnosed with this. Okay, that just reminded you that you had an expiration date. You had that before the diagnosis. Your escape from this was not a bill of health. Your escape from this body and its brokenness was not to, to go to the doctor and get a good report. That was never your escape. You're going to die no matter what that report says. Your escape is the resurrection. And that hasn't changed no matter what the doctor says. That hasn't changed. If you lose sight of that, 
you feel hopeless and helpless because all you've got then is your physical existence and how you're doing. Or whether you're going to keep that job or afford that thing or lose that house or lose your health insurance, right? And we live like rabbits, looking to see who's going to fix it, what's, what's going to happen. And the resurrection is far from us. No, 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 no. For the Christian, the, the resurrection is this shaft of light that comes into our lives because the Savior overcame death. And no matter when it comes for you, you'll step right over it. A whole new existence. And you will take certain things with you that made your life significant. And certain things you will leave behind that didn't matter on the other side of the resurrection. Now, before I run out of time here, I'll come back to that point to pray for some folks in just a moment. But there's a little verse here that just so affected me, and I hope I can make it through this. It's verse 9. And I titled this section, Let God be faithful, though every man be clueless. Verse 9. You've come to the scene of the empty tomb. Verse 8 says, And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. Ah, Somebody believes something. It's highlighted. One of the apostles believes. Now, that says something about the other by implication. Somebody believes something. And verse 9 clarifies why that just got said. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. As yet, they did not understand. And I wrote this out in your outline. God still has a sovereign plan for our lives and for his glory when we don't understand and when we aren't in step with him. God still has a sovereign plan. When we don't understand it, And we're not anywhere near being in step with him. And yet he is still fulfilling his plan faithfully to the end. Now, one one could safely say in this passage, as we read the rest of this chapter eventually, but in this passage, the disciples were not having an A day at this moment, right? This is, I just said in the beginning, this is the biggest event in Christian history. This is the biggest event. All right? You can group it together with the cross because without the cross, uh, the resurrection doesn't, doesn't fix us. But without the resurrection, the cross just means a guy died today. So you need them together. But without question, the resurrection here is representing the biggest day in human history, the biggest day in the Bible spoken of since Genesis, the biggest day for any believer who would ever know God. And no one shows up for the resurrection that day. No one. And you say, well, wait a minute. The, 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 ladies, the ladies showed up. Not for the resurrection. They showed up to find a dead man. They showed up with spices in their hands to further the burial process. They showed up wondering, right? Mark chapter 16. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, 
Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Were they expecting to show up? Were they running there with, he's risen, let's go see what resurrection looks like. No. They were wondering who was going to move the big rock so they could get to the dead body. They weren't looking for a resurrected Christ. Luke chapter 24 Verse 9 says, And returning from the tomb, they told all these things. Now at this point, there's been a meeting. Mary Magdalene runs off by herself, comes back with the two apostles, and we see them here. Eventually, the other ladies who have come to the tomb are going to encounter Christ, and they're going to go back and tell the other 11. We pick that up in verse 10 of Luke 24. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Now, can you go here with me? This is the biggest event ever, and no one gets it. There's no gathering of disciples on the third day as they remembered the third day. The third day. It's the third day. And they all gathered to run to the last place reference point on earth that they knew Jesus to be to see what resurrection would mean. What does resurrection look like? Listen, few showed up for the cross. No one showed up for the resurrection. No one was believing God for that day to come. No one was standing in faith. They were in the upper room praying with hearts full of faith, praying this event to take place. Listen, it's not as though Jesus hadn't told them. Right? I mean, your outline, I didn't put the passages in there. You can go back and look them up. Matthew says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Listen, you know, the closest thing we come to belief here is the enemies of Jesus. It was the enemies of Jesus who wanted the guards posted because they remembered. The guy said something about on the third day he would rise again. The enemies believed, but the people of God... Why, why, does that, why does that mess with me? Why does that blow me away? Because it didn't alter God at all. God had a sovereign plan that he intended to fulfill no matter what man did, no matter what his followers did, no matter what his own disciples did. What an amazing thing that that here we are on Resurrection Sunday in this passage. Can, can you remember just a few days earlier? I mean, here Peter's running ahead. It doesn't even say Peter believed in this moment. John believes. He believes. It doesn't say Peter did. Just moments earlier, just a few days earlier, they're gathered together to have a meal, the Passover meal. And they're having a fight about who's going to be greatest. Remember this scene? This is what's going on. The moment of all moments is on the table. It's about to happen. And they're fighting about who's greatest among them. And then Peter, you know, Peter who had just been rebuked a few weeks earlier, 
because he rebuked Jesus. Jesus tried to share with him, you know, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be murdered. No, no, and Peter opposes him on that. Remember? These guys don't get it. They are not with the program. Right after supper, they're going to be in the garden, and the crowd is coming, and Peter, you know, Peter's going to save the day, cut the, get, cut the guy's ear off. Did you understand? These guys, they're not getting it. Peter will deny that he even knows Jesus in just a matter of moments. And a few days later, the resurrection will take place and no one will show up. And yet, just a few days after this, these individuals are going to be commissioned to go into all the world. And the Holy Spirit is going to come in Acts chapter 2 and the church is going to be birthed. These same people who so missed it. These were the people of God who were so out of step with God. Yet God didn't miss a step. Now, now can, can you take that into your world today with you? Because I, I think sometimes I get convinced that God's only able to do in my life what I can figure out. You know, you know, obedience is a big thing and having faith is a big thing and we encourage both in this church. <laughs> knowing the will of God and knowing the word of God. Oh, you got to know the word and pray and find out God's will and have faith and believe and obey. And I start believing, whoa, how is, th- how is it that I still have sound? <laughs> we ain't got no lights. Was it a morning like this? (laughs) Of all the the things that we put in, in our lap as believers, believe God, have faith, know, obey, they did none of them. And the biggest event in history still took place exactly according to God's sovereign plan. You know, I I just meditated on this, thought about it, singing those songs, just undone, thinking, Lord in heaven, beholding your glory, God, what will that be like? Because you are so different from us. This doesn't mean God doesn't want us to know his word, trust him, believe him, have faith. He's looking for faith in our lives. But let's not put the accent on us. Clearly, the accent in this passage is on a sovereign God who will not fail. He will not fail. Even when no one's looking for him, he is still faithful. Look at this last thought. Matt, you can go ahead and come. J.C. Ryle says, We are taught finally in these verses that there may be much ignorance even in true believers. For three long years, these two leading apostles had heard our Lord speak of his resurrection as a fact, and yet they had not understood him. Again and again, he had staked the truth of his Messiahship on his rising from the dead, and yet they had never taken in his meaning. (laughs) Surely the Christian minister has little right to complain of ignorance among his hearers, 
when he marks the ignorance of Peter and John under the teaching of Christ himself. (laughs) I know ain't nothing we're saying as clear as what Christ said. After all, listen, after all, we must remember that true grace and not head knowledge is the one thing needful. You're looking for one essential in your life. It's hidden in God in his grace. That's the one essential for you and me today. Not centered in me, in my knowledge, in my faith, in my abilities, in my consistency, in my performance, and whether or not I'm in step with God. Because God proves over and over again you can be way out of step with him and he can still show up and do exactly what his grace had intended to do. Morel goes on and says, In fact, the extent to which one man may have much knowledge and yet no grace is one of the greatest mysteries in religion and one which the last day alone will unfold. Let us always seek knowledge and be ashamed of ignorance. But let us not despair because our knowledge is imperfect or or our ability to understand or our ability to follow God is imperfect. Let us not despair that you are here today not feeling like you're a perfect Christian. Let us not despair that of all that you know, my goodness, you've been saved for how long and you're still doing what? Let us not despair. Let us not locate the center of our existence in us. Let us not despair because our knowledge is imperfect. And above all, let us make sure that like Peter and John, we have grace and right hearts. What God did here in this event, for some this morning, it it needs to be that shaft of light into your hopelessness. For others here this morning who are very familiar with this story, it needs to be the mightiest reminder that could ever take place. This is the greatest day. The focal point is right here. Everything else is in the periphery. The focal point of what God has done is right here. And you couldn't have picked a more off day for the people of God. (laughs) Yet God is, as Ephesians 1 says, working all things after the counsel of his will. Still true for you and me as well. Let's stand up together.